Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Fertility Answers Podcast. I'm Neil Chappell. Instead of chatting with a patient today, we brought back uh, Dr. John Stormit to have another end of the day clinic chat. Today we thought we'd focus on misconceptions or barriers to IVF. Uh, as per the first couple podcasts that we did together, this has been inspired by a couple of patients that we've seen this week that have just asked questions of us or had conversations with us that were a bit surprising about what they thought about IVF and why they thought it was or wasn't for them. And so we thought we'd sit down at the end of a nice productive day at clinic and hash out some of these questions because if they had them, then we figured some other people may. Concerns with IVF that I get from patients is, well, I don't want to do IVF because I'm afraid of making too many embryos. It kind of depends on the patient because some patients say, oh, I really don't want eight embryos in the freezer. And, and some patients, there's just really, it's very unlikely that they'll have eight embryos right. in the freezer. You, you kind of go back to, okay, well, remember, most eggs are abnormal. Many eggs won't fertilize. Many eggs won't make it to the embryo stage. We're not looking at eight embryos at this point. We're looking at being happy with one or two, and that can help you build a family of one or two. That helps put things in perspective. But for patients that are at risk of getting multiple eggs in an IVF cycle and therefore multiple embryos at the end of the day, I love talking to them about selective fertilization. Sure the ability to freeze embryos was a game changer yeah. because we were able to do single embryo transfers and then have chances later on. And that did change the game. The ability to freeze eggs was absolutely a game changer in this regard because we can go through an IVF cycle and not have to fertilize all the eggs. You can just take a few of the eggs with the goal of only creating a number of embryos that match the couple's goal for building a family and freeze those extra eggs in case you need them down the road. This gives me that permission to give this a shot, knowing that this is probably, if not my only, at least my best chance for, for building my family on my own terms. And it's been, it's been awesome. So I think that's, that hasn't always been an easy answer because egg freezing has only been non-experimental since the late, or I guess around 2013, uh, late 2012. So that's a, it's relatively new. But it's now it's now been something that's really opened up the door for a lot of folks. Patients are sometimes concerned about, oh, if it's that easy to to freeze eggs, and why would you own, why wouldn't you just fertilize one and go one at a time? And the Fair answer point. is because you you're really shooting yourself in the foot. And our lab gets really anxious about that. Well, we're going to do this one egg at a time, and the freezing and the thawing of the egg, so I mean, it can hurt. The egg. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that the patients understand that there is a fair balance. If we had only six eggs retrieved, then you would recommend against, you know, selective fertilization of those. Yeah, that's a fair point. It's a conversation you have at the front end. You say, how many, how many kids do you want based on your age, your egg quality, your story, your sperm quality, et cetera? How many eggs do you think we need to fertilize to give us a good shot at limiting the number of embryos and, and still hitting our family building goal? It's, it is a conversation and it's an art, not a science as, as, the, as the phrasing goes, but it is a really powerful tool when used appropriately. Um, the, next, the next question that I'll get is businesses are adding on options for fertility coverage or just outright fertility coverage. And so the assumption of fertility is not covered doesn't cut it anymore. 
so I, I'll date myself again, but when I started <laughs> in 99, we had um, 4% of our patients had insurance coverage for not 40. And today we have in Baton Rouge, 40% of our patients have some coverage and 32% in Lafayette has some sort of coverage and it might not cover the whole thing. That's a whole lot better. And I, even though, you know, our state is oftentimes number 50 and the things you want to be number one in, <laughs> we're really having more companies be progressive and realize that it improves employee retention mm -hmm. and employee morale to offer things like this. And so seriously hoping that number continues to improve. But the barrier to IVF, the financial barrier is one that it just exists. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, New York just became another mandated state. So yeah. the list of states that are mandated is going to grow. The field is going to look very different in a few short years. I hope the field is going to look very different in a few short years. I had a patient yesterday that I was talking to and she was asking, well, what's the timeline for the process? And I said, okay, we, you know, we do this, we do the testing, we make sure we know who you are and what we need to do to optimize you for the best IVF cycle that you can have, because the goal is always to do just one. Uh, and, then, and then we go. And the, the egg stimulation takes about you know, a week and a half or two weeks. And she was like, what? <laughs> I, what do you mean a week and a half? She, she's like, I, I thought you had to take shots for two months. Yeah. And so, I said, oh, okay, well, no. Uh, so that was, that was actually surprising to me. But I hear it when she said I thought back, and I've heard that a few times, that don't you have to take shots for, for months and months? The menstrual cycle is, on average, 28 days. It's two weeks to grow an egg and two weeks to get ready to catch a baby. And so it makes sense that IVF stimulation is only about two weeks as well. Once you've done a transfer and you're supporting a pregnancy, that lasts a little while because you want to get through the first trimester with your fertility doc. But the actual stimulation is, is two weeks at yeah, the most. I'm, I'm always happy at the end of an IVF cycle, regardless of the outcome, when a patient says, this was not nearly as bad as I thought it was going to yeah. be. And I would say the majority of patients, and we ask them that in surveys, compared to how you thought before, mm -hmm. how was your cycle? And the vast majority are saying, not nearly as bad as I thought, based on what they had read or heard. My hope is that because more people are talking about it, mm -hmm. i.e. through this podcast and all the other platforms that are coming out, that that kind of misinformation, that kind of fear of the unknown is going to go away. People for cancer, they're scared of chemotherapy, but they kind of know what to expect. Right. They don't know what to expect yet with IVF. And I hope, that gets, I hope that's getting better. So many of my patients now say, oh, I have a friend that did this or I have a friend that did that. But I had a patient two days ago that was very scared and tearful because she knows no one that's done this. And that, that's, that's upsetting because I'm willing to bet that she does and she just doesn't know that she does. The biggest, uh, biggest fears, what, what, what are the biggest fears that your patients... Uh, I'm going to be hormonal. I'm going to be difficult. Um, I heard you know, this about hormones and I'm super scared yeah. about how it's going to affect my work, my home life. Yeah. Um, Etc. What do you tell them? I tell them that you know, here's the bad news: your your normal estrogen and a normal menstrual cycle peaks at around 200, and in an IBS cycle, it could peak at around three or four thousand. Mm -hmm. That scares husbands; they want to leave the, the room right there. <laughs> I said, however, it's only going to peak for a day, and the other thing is, an estrogen level that high most of the time doesn't 
make you crazy. It might make you a bit more tearful. It might make you a bit more emotional. I think if you're prepared for that and if your support group, your husband and family sort of otherwise know that, I think it's helpful. Again, I, I probably three-fourths of my patients say I wasn't nearly as mm-hmm. crazy as I thought I might be mm-hmm. because of that's what they hear. Hormonal and fertile women are yeah. just difficult, and I just don't see it. I, I, that's what I, t- I tell patients that you may feel emotional, but that's mm-hmm. because this is an emotional process. Yeah. And anybody that's going through any kind of medical treatment for something is going to feel emotional regardless of what the hormones do. And actually, what I found as a kind of easy way to keep it in my brain, I say a third, a third, a third. Right. As a third of patients say, they don't feel anything, any different at all. Right. A third of patients do feel kind of not great. And then a third of patients feel better than they've ever felt in their life. Definitely. And that. they're like, I don't want to ever stop these hormones. And which, so I'm like, okay, well, you probably should. and and we'll go from we'll go from there but i so i say a third a third a third is completely unpredictable and i've seen patients that have gone through a couple cycles and they felt totally different on each of them and so probably a lot of it has to do with the mindset that you go in they felt a lot the first cycle they didn't feel as much a second cycle because they weren't as nervous they weren't as scared they weren't as fearful of the unknown and so the second cycle was not a big deal to them at all they didn't feel anything uh so i think a lot of it has to do with your your mindset your positivity which is not easy but it, it can make a difference. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's unpredictable. You can feel some symptoms, but for the most part, patients do pretty darn well and, su- and surprise themselves. One patient wanted to delay IVF because she was gonna be in a wedding, and she said that if I go through IVF, I'm going to look four months pregnant. Right. And as well, maybe, but probably not. I, yeah, it, you, you do hold on to some extra water because your estrogen's anywhere from two to four thousand but you, you pee it off pretty quick after and yeah. and it, 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 it goes away but but again everybody's experience is different so kind of walking them through those expectations that's that's interesting that you had brought up what about the fear of multiples that was a huge thing for many years especially when our twin rate was almost 50 percent because we transferred to talk about um your patients now as they come in at at age 30 mm-hmm. is that is that as big of a concern for them? Oh, yeah. So I'll have patients say, I'd rather do IUI than IVF because I don't want twins. Right, right. And so say, well, <laughs> the twin rate is about sevenfold higher with IUI because IUI, I can't really control what, what's fertilized and making it to the, to the uterus to a certain degree, obviously. You, you know, we had that patient that we saw today that really, really responded to just pills and, and said, you have four leads. We gotta, we're not going to do anything this month. Husband, go fly away to Alaska for a few days. Right, we canceled her cycle because she had too many eggs develop on an IUI cycle. Yeah. Whereas in an IVF cycle... That's fine. We want as many eggs as possible because we control how many to put back in. Right. So the fear of multiples, there's a 1% or less chance of twins when we put one embryo because of fear, the possibility of... um, a splitting and, and, and implanting yeah. in, that, in that sense. That's what I quote him. I say it's a 1% chance that a single embryo transfer splits into twins similar to Mother Nature. Right. Similar to Mother Nature. And if Mother Nature splits an embryo, it's twins. And in, in IVF, these are embryos just like in Mother Nature. They can split. And occasionally you get a twin pregnancy. Uh, but, yeah, the incidence is around 1%. IUI twin rates are anywhere from 7 to 12%. Right. Their, their jaw drops whenever I say that. 
Uh, the other three most common questions I get about IVF, and so I really say this out the bat. So here are the three things that, you, that you're probably going to ask me. Is this gonna increase my time to menopause? No, because it's eggs that, are, that have already been woken up from hibernation, they're already going to die anyway, or it's a salvage operation. We're going after eggs that are on their way out. And so no, it does not change the time to menopause. No, it does not increase your risk for cancer. Those studies have been pretty conclusive, even though that surprises a lot of people, but that's true. And the complication rate, I quoted it around 1 in 2,500 based on that human reproductive human reproduction study that came out a couple years ago. But those, those are the other three that I get. I don't know if you have any others. The husbands often are concerned that this is going to somehow negatively affect their wife's health in, in whatever capacity. You know, you mentioned cancer, but there are other. Does this just alter her body somehow where she's at risk? And it's a... It's a heartfelt concern because they're like, you know, I want a child, but not at the expense of making her health worse. And mm -hmm. so, so sometimes, you know, we look at that, and that's been looked at really, really carefully. Um, I, I often tell patients now that I think the last quote is one and a half percent of all babies born in the United States were conceived through IVF. So it's a crazy high number. So we have a lot of IVF babies, which is unfortunate that it had to go through that but fortunate that we have that data to look at to see you know it really is healthy it really is it doesn't impact their the wife's longevity yeah uh, or or health overall yeah yeah i that is that we finally have enough data to say that right. that that that's what it looks like i mean we're constantly collecting and i i was talking with the nurses the other day i feel like i get it i get emails of articles that come out in OBGYN and rei every month or every day to my to my inbox, and at least once a month, there's an article on offspring and their risks after ART, which a whole nother podcast, um, because how to read that research is important. But the concern is here: are these babies mm -hmm. normal? Or are they not normal? Right. Overall, the short answer is they're normal. Overly reassuring. Yeah. Overly reassuring. Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing that is worth talking about that can be difficult to talk about because it's nuanced is the fear of and I can't think of a better way to say it, but the fear of being swindled, I guess. Absolutely. So they, everybody says, what's this? What's that? What's this? What's this acronym? Is this really necessary? And I think in large part, that's due to the, the nebulous, not spoken about nature of IVF. But we need to be honest and talk about patients about all the things that go into IVF. What's good? What's bad? What's risky? What's not? What's beneficial? versus what's helpful and the difference there. So I thought we could take a little bit of time and talk about a few of the various aspects of IVF. It's going to be hard not to go too deep into the weeds. So listeners, if there's something y'all want to talk about more, reach out and let us know because we could probably devote an entire podcast to all these and, and honestly probably will. But I think it's good to highlight it's such a timely comment, a New York Times editorial about four or five days ago, so early December, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, uh, an editorial that came out that talked about the add-ons and the racket of the IVF business. And it was a pretty, um, she, the author was pretty jaded. She didn't paint a, a good picture of reproductive endocrinologists, and she certainly made it look like a business was dishonest. The reason why where she was what she was coming from is she learned 
through her own research, and she was a patient. She was an infertility patient. She admitted for the impetus for her article was because she learned that a lot of these, I'm going to call them add-ons or extras and IVF, ancillary treatments, adjuncts, if you will, were not proven. As a matter of fact, some of them were proven not to be a benefit. And she learned that, wow, this doctor offered me, would you like an endometrial scratch to go with this IVF? And that's only $700. And this doctor is doing this. And so she made it look like we are offering procedures just for money. So the fear of being swindled, I think, when people read articles like that is real. Mm-hmm. So let's take some of those just um, add-ons, if you will, and talk about real briefly the data mm-hmm. that supports them or doesn't. And then how do you talk to your patients about a procedure that has no data to show its benefit, but they want it anyway. The hardest thing to do is to talk people out of something that they want when you know it's probably not the right thing for them. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? That is that is another side of the coin that I think that, that that's going to be an ethical and a philosophical debate for yeah. us. But that's how, that, that the answer to the last part of your question is there. I'm going to try and be as brief as I can about, with some of these topics, but they have research. And the thing that was difficult to interpret about the New York Times article was, yep, that's true. The, some of the research says what she's saying, but it, it, it all depends. So pre-implantation genetic testing is a perfect example. The PGT, and specifically pre-implantation genetic testing for what's called aneuploidy, where you have abnormal number of chromosomes. That's testing the embryos before you transfer them to see if they have the correct copy of chromosomes. Uh, which is basically textbooks of DNA that help you kind of build the building blocks for life. Do you have the right number from your mom? Do you have the right number from your dad? It's the most common reason that an embryo fails to develop an implant. And so it makes sense that if you knew that genetics was normal, you would have an improvement in the pregnancy rate and and a decrease in miscarriage rate. We inherently thought that was true because of logical thought processes. Some studies have have shown that to be true. A lot of studies are starting to come out that show that that's really not as powerful a tool as we thought. Where where does that leave us? What what I tell most patients is PGT has a role in selecting the best embryo from a group of embryos to transfer first. Because the pregnancy potential of a normal embryo, which is called euploid, is much higher than an abnormal embryo or aneuploid. So does it mean that you're gonna you're more likely to get pregnant if you do PGT than not? No. But it does mean that I can probably get you pregnant faster because I can find the right embryo and transfer it first versus just picking an embryo out of the bag. I had a patient who had nine embryos. She was 39 years old and she had them tested and eight of them were tested and, and found to be abnormal. And I felt really bad for her, but she transferred the one that was normal and conceived and did fine and thrilled that she did this because in theory she might have transferred one of the abnormals and it's rare but it could develop into a normal pregnancy um, less than one percent of the time Um, it might have had a an abnormality that was not life-threatening so there's a chance that that could work but she would have likely gone through eight transfers and failed or miscarried. Mm -hmm. And so to that person, 
I think it's helpful. I had a patient ask me, why wouldn't anybody test? The answer is, of course, the test is not perfect. We've been transferring untested embryos for years, yeah. and they still have the same risk that any pregnancy does, and that's a, a not you know, not going to full term or miscarrying mm-hmm. um, or complications that are not genetic. Yeah, so. yeah. For folks that I think, hey, we're only going to get, you know, one or two embryos, you know, it's totally appropriate. Just transfer them. Yeah. Just transfer them. But there, there are studies out there that show that if you're going to get multiple embryos, it can save you a little bit of money and save you a little bit of time right. by doing the testing. Do you want to tackle ICSI and assisted hatching today? So, there's a, <laughs> so there are two ancillary tests that, that most labs in the United States today would say is not necessarily ancillary but, but helpful. One is called ICSI, and it's an acronym that stands for Intracytoplasmic Sperm Injection. Um, I remember when ICSI came out in 94, yeah. and everybody was like, are you going to do that? Are you gonna, Are y'all going to offer ICSI? And it was just like this big mystery and and they damaged a lot of eggs when they first started and they got really good at it and now you fear that without injecting the sperm into the egg to enhance fertilization that you wake up the next morning with these really expensive eggs that you retrieved and no fertilization and it's i call it a long walk to the dugout when you talk to the patient and say guess what we retrieved 12 eggs they were all mature they looked great we put them with the sperm, and they didn't fertilize, mm-hmm. not any of them. So good news, we now know why you weren't getting pregnant. Bad news, we've got to do all this over again. Yeah. So for an extra, usually $1,000, and that's a lot of money, I acknowledge. It's not as much as a full other IVF cycle. cycle. So there are scientists who say, why would you offer this, quote, adjunct or add-on, when you don't, it's not been proven to help people with PCO or patients with tubal factor infertility mm-hmm. with normal sperm. And I say, you're 100% right. But I have to make that long walk to the dugout. Yeah. I have to look that patient in the face and say, I'm really sorry you have failed FERT. Mm-hmm. So if a patient declines ICSI because they say it's just an extra $1,000 that I don't think we need. At least we talked about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Hatching is another procedure that is now done with a laser and it's super precise mm-hmm. the theory that if you if you thin the layer of the outside of the shell called the zona pellucida if you thin that a little bit and help enable the embryo that's going to hatch out of that shell that maybe implantation will be enhanced and therefore your pregnancy chances for that embryo will be better it's it's less controversial i don't think i don't think it's nearly as big of a decision is something like PGT. Yeah, and, and funny enough, ICSI and assisted hatching are required for PGT right. uh, by nature of the process and procedure. And we, we, we will spend the whole day talking about PGT. There's enough studies and enough, enough stories about that. The next, oh goodness, the next one we could spend a long time on. And things like intralipids, when she, when she wrote that, I was like, yep, I agree. I'm very biased everybody is biased in this field, I think, about the immune system and its role in reproduction. Absolutely, the immune system plays a role in reproduction. The the embryo landing in the endometrium, this foreign body, the embryo, landing in the mom, and then the mom accepting and growing this embryo, that is a very balanced immune reaction. So absolutely, the immune system is playing a role. But there are 
people that have extrapolated the fact that the immune system is involved and taken it to places that we're not really sure where we're going. Things like intralipids and IVIG, these are very controversial and very expensive. And I agree, the studies do not clearly show a benefit. And so I have very little problem in, in telling patients that ask about it, I'm not doing that. I, I, I don't want to incorporate that in my practice until we figure out what patient it benefits because it's just, it's too expensive. We don't understand the risks. We don't understand what that's doing long-term. And I'm not thrilled about it. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts? Patient comes to me and asks me if I would do intralipids because they want it or if they would do IVIG because they want it. And I've had patients be pretty demonstrative in their feelings. And I talk to them about the studies and they say, yeah, I hear you, doc, but I still want it. It becomes a little bit difficult to tell a patient who's, quote, paying for a service to dictate their care. Um, and I, I want patients to be involved in their care, but ultimately it's me pulling the plug on, on, on the appropriateness of the care. And they have to count on our, I don't want this to sound arrogant, but our expertise of, of ascertaining whether it's helpful or not. Yeah. And patients have absolutely told me, if you don't do this, then I'm going to go to somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I try to explain it to them. And it's happened very rarely, but I, I do try to hope get through to them. And I tell patients, um, and for all the patients listening, be involved, do your research, bring those studies to me or to your doctor. I love them. And I'm happy to, to look at it at any studies. but And, and it, you can ask your doctor, hey, what are, what are the studies that you're, you're, you're telling me these things? What are you basing, what are you basing this, this advice on? If someone tells you, I think you should do PGT, it is totally appropriate for you to say, why, what research, uh, what research have you read that leads you to conclude that that's right for me? Right. That's a totally reasonable question. Same for intralipids or, or anything. I mean, same for an antibiotic for a cough. Right. Doc, what, what about your experience with this makes it sense? And if they say, I had a patient once, that, that can be kind of a dangerous, that right. can be kind of a dangerous answer. My sister did this <laughs> and she got pregnant. Yeah. Well, that was awesome, <laughs> but... I'm not related to you. <laughs> so I think that it's, it's great. I love patients requesting. One of the most interesting requests that we've had over the last um, several years is the, the new IVF called Invacel. Oh, yeah. And, I, and I'm, I'm fascinated by how only a small portion of the reproductive endocrinologists have adapted this to part of their practice. Mm-hmm. So for the listening audience, Invocel is a, is a device that you can extract eggs in the usual manner, place the eggs and the sperm together in this plastic device, and it, it goes in a, in a holder and it actually goes into the vagina and it hangs out there for a few days using a, quote, a more natural incubator, if you will. And they offer this Invocel at a discounted price so it's not as expensive as IVF and so the hope was when they when they designed Invacel that they could help these people who didn't have access to a good lab so they could go and get their their eggs retrieved and so that was what it was designed for and so now people are saying well maybe we can give you a discounted IVF and use this Invacel and it's almost as good and I feel really um kind of torn 
And I don't want to disparage the other physicians who are offering MSL, but to our audience, I'd like to kind of address it and say this is why we've chosen at this point not to incorporate it in our practice. Why don't you tell, tell well, what you tell them, because I know you have patients in for as well. Yeah, oh, sure. And, and I guess, folks, this is what an afternoon after we've done seeing patients looks like. We sit around <laughs> and talk about all the controversial issues in fertility and say, how do you feel about that? What does your patient think about that? Are we making a mistake by not offering intralipids? Are we, are we being rash or are we, are we, you know, let's go back and look at these data and say, you know, are, you know, are, are our feelings justified by the research? And, and so we go and do our research and our, our literature reviews and come back and say, hey, I found these studies and I found this study and, and this, this is what this is. I... Um, I, it's it's a it's a tough corner to paint into, and so this is no longer a podcast. This is me and John talking like <laughs> like we do. But I, I feel diff, it's difficult for me to justify Invacel in 2019 when I'm sitting in a clinic with a high functioning, excellent lab. And you're right. I feel like Invacel was initially designed for places that didn't have a lab because the embryos have to grow up. And the embryos are best to grow up in a lab. They're very, very fragile. They need a controlled environment. And Invacel is designed to be as controlled as possible, but it's not as good as a lab. Uh, and, and so it just makes no sense for me to, to not utilize the resources that I have. Now, the things that make Invacel low cost are the fact that they use less medicine. That's fine. You can use less medicine and still use a lab. And the cost of the cost of quote unquote using the lab isn't going to be that much different than the cost of the Invacel device itself. And so I really don't see a difference between Invacel and something like MenStem IVF, where you just do low dose IVF to get a few eggs and try for just one embryo right. to to get one pregnancy. They're the same. But the studies that that got the FDA approval for Invacel, they even say worse embryo quality low pregnancy rates and so i just don't understand i don't well, understand well I, I understand it because a lot of times when patients come in they, they come in with an anecdotal story my my best friend got pregnant with imbecile i mean it's like those those weight loss articles or weight loss pictures you know before and after they take this pill it worked for her or him so i want to do it so imbecile offers that i think we just have to kind of present it. Mm -hmm. um, if new studies with Invacel come out that shows that it's number one, lower cost, number two, similar pregnancy rates as minimal stem, as you said, then I would absolutely consider it. But those studies aren't out there. And so I, I have to steer patients and my patients who ask about it. Mm -hmm. so I'm just not going to offer that because we have something better at the same cost. That's kind of how I feel. It's it's like what, why why I don't need to put the embryo in your vagina. I can I can keep it in the lab. The lab is up and running. Right. Just put it put it there. It, it it can sit there. It can grow and it can do well in a well controlled environment. I guess that that that's the part that blows my mind. Uh, and so and, and the other thing is is the the inclusion criteria to to meet Invacel is so strict. It is tough. Uh, you have to be you have to be a pristine perfect. You know. God-fearing American to be able to do it, and, and so I just think I, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But I, I hope that this hasn't been too controversial of an episode. Again, this is this is just another Thursday afternoon after clinic talking back and forth about how to be better at this. 
I, I want to grapple with all these to make sure that you guys at least have a foundation uh, of understanding to, to talk to your doctor. And, and as John kind of alluded to, I welcome disagreement and I welcome questioning. So if a patient says, I hear you, I think intralipids is right for me, then it's a conversation we have. If I'm not the right doctor for them, then, then I, you know, I, I do genuinely wish them good luck. I tell my patients, I don't care how you get pregnant, just I want you to. Uh, so I hope I haven't hurt anybody's feelings today, but I do this, appreciate y'all listening. This is a good example of what we do talk about, and we change our minds not uncommonly when new data comes out. Well, change our mind is kind of harsh. <laughs> <laughs> I would say as, if you're going to be a scientist, you need to be open to the findings as they come. As, 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 as the field gets older and we're able to do more high-quality research and get a few, a few more a better answers, there may be a patient population that Invisel is better than MenStem for. Sure. I can't imagine what that would look like, but it may exist. And one day, with the persistence of, and, and rigor of, of, of science, we'll, we'll find it and then we'll know what to do. But until that day, I, I feel like we need to be cognizant of what the physiology is and how it, and whether or not what what's going on makes sense. And then most importantly, be honest with the patients about the true known benefits, the risks and, and, and kind of what they're getting into because their expectations clearly are not always in line with reality in, in that they think it's going to take two months of shots or they're afraid they're going to go into menopause or, 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 you know, or things like that. So I, I thought today would be a nice time to sit down and say, hey, this is a little glimpse into what IVF really is, um, and here's a glimpse into what some of the adjunct therapies really are. And I hope this sparks a lot more conversation uh, for everyone out there. Again, you can always reach out and welcome any conversations that, that you guys may want us to continue. The list of topics grows, and we're just going to try and tackle them as, as frequently as we can. Thank you, guys, and, and good night. We're going to go continue this conversation no doubt for another like seven hours. <laughs> <laughs>